0: meetings. There's a lot going on in this world that gets our attention, right? And Eddie says, since I'm not on Facebook, he's going to shame me into joining Facebook again. He is wrong. Uh, I will not be uh, shamed into that. But he did put a video up there that is explaining what's going to be happening this coming weekend. So if you're on the Facebook, or if you are shamed into joining the Facebook, join the Facebook and share that stuff. I'm just going to tell everyone that I know about that. And so we'll deal with that on Saturday at 4 p.m. right next door here in this nice little lot that we have adjoined to our property. You know, if you're like me this week, you've thought a lot about the people affected down in Houston. We've got Georgie and UK's own daughter who is there who has had difficulty. We had Crystal's father and family affected in a hurricane that took place in South Carolina last year or two years ago, last year. These are the kind of things that we see all the time now. But if you've kept up with the news this week and you've read in the news, this is not a hurricane that we've seen in a long time. Most of us in this room probably experienced Sandy in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I know I did my first two falls here in Jersey. There's been a hurricane in both of those. Sandy was bad. But Sandy was not nearly as bad rain-wise as it was down in Houston. And so I began to think this week in comparing floods to the floods that's right in front of me right now. And so I came across this nice little chart that... In the last week, so there, from August 24th to August 31st, this place down in Texas called Pecan Island, or Pecan Island, however you pronounce that word, they had 9.14 inches around. Sandy, we had a total of 9.53 at the most in Cape May. Then you start seeing that these circles get a little bigger. You'll notice that Houston itself had 43 inches of rain. Almost four feet. You have Beaumont, Fort Arthur, 47 inches of rain, even closer to four feet of rain. And then you have the town of Cedar Bluff with almost 52 inches of rain. That is a lot. And you've seen the pictures and you've seen the devastation. You've seen The interstates that turned into white water and dangerous rivers. And I began to think, man, that's terrible. But how much worse was the biblical flood? Because we talk about things of like this is a disaster of biblical proportions. Because we mean it is bad. And so I began to look very closely in Genesis chapter 6, as I'm sure some of you did, in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7. Today we just want to learn and remind ourselves of some things that we can learn from these hurricanes, from these types of floods. Some will be specific to Harvey. Some will not be. But we go there first to Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7. Kenny read for us that the earth Of the time of Noah. It was filled with violence. And the Lord said I'm going to destroy it. I would like to make sure. That I am absolutely clear. So follow me here. I am not saying. That the hurricane. In Houston. Is a judgment of sin. On the people of Houston. Or on the United States of America. I would say that Amos 4. Says hey. When something like this happens, we might need to ask some questions. Because he would point famines, he would point wars, he would point to things and say to the people of Israel, yet you did not return to me. I want to begin by saying I do not believe 100%, nor do I have any way of knowing. But it should make me stop and ask a question. Not to mention there's another hurricane on the hills. Irma, we don't know where that one is going yet. But maybe we should stop, slow our roll as a country, and begin to think about where we stand. Because the world, in Noah's day, it was filled with violence. Man's thought was on evil continually, and the Lord said, I am going to destroy it. And God destroyed it. So if it's going to destroy the world, how bad would it be? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details about the ark, because I'm not emphasizing the ark. I'm going to emphasize the rain. the Noah was told to go into the ark, and you would see this in chapter 7 of the ark. He was given time to warn people that it would come, and they didn't heed to it. So in the 600th year of his life, he goes into the ark. So he is 600 one, I guess 599 if he's in the 600th year. But we're going to say he's in the 600th year. In the second month and the 17th day, he goes into the ark. It rains for 40 days and nights. Anybody get cabin fever when we have a snowstorm and we are stuck inside for like 24, 48 hours? I get some serious cabin fever, personally. Well, he's in this big old boat with beautiful smelling animals and his family for 40 days and 40 nights as it is pouring rain. As I want you to notice how it is described there, look down with me in verse 18 beginning of Genesis chapter 7 as it describes these things. Let's pick up the 17. it said, the flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased, and it bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. We're talking about really deep water. To the point where, notice how it says, it mightily prevailed. That's the idea of white water. I don't know how many of you have ever been white water rafting before. But if you've been white water rafting, they don't let you go out there without your life jacket on. And they don't let you go out there if you're in really dangerous water, unless you've got a helmet on. Because you will die. The water will take you wherever it wants to take you. You've got no control over it. And if you try to put your feet down, one of the things that they will tell you is you need to get back. You need to hold on to your vest, but you need to lean back with your feet in the air. Because if you try to put your feet down and stop it, guess what the water does? It just bowls you right over. You'll break your legs. And next thing you know, you're drowned. You're dead. You've got no control. The water wins. The water is strong. It is prevailing. And didn't we see that in just these 51 inches to 18 inches of rain that we saw? How many cars do we see getting swept away? That you take that car by itself and you put it out here on the pavement, it's got all the power. But you get it in that little bit of water, even just a few feet deep, and the water has all the power. That's what's going on on the earth. That the water is taking over the earth. It is prevailing on the earth. And that's because the floods had opened. The windows of heaven it said it opened up. And the depths of the fountains had burst forth. So we got water coming from the top. We got water coming from the bottom. It is, picture of fire hydrant going off. We know how much water's coming out with a fire hydrant. Imagine if volcanoes of water were going off. How much water was off. That's what we're talking about. Just from the ground. And then, we talk, again, we talk about the skies opening. Imagine if just a building of this size, there was a tear in the clouds from all of the water that was there. And boom. Here comes a hull of this water. To the point where it says the tops of the mountains were covered. Now notice the next phrase here in verse 20. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Those of you that are familiar with the cubit, we don't use it. It's a biblical measurement. Approximately 18 inches. So it was about from your elbow to the tip of your finger. So that would be 18 inches right per cubit. That would be, 270 inches above the mountains. Put that in feet. That is 22 and a half feet of water over the top of the mountains. Picture that. It is the globe minus all of the land that pops up out of it. And there once were people. But the next phrase, verse 21, all flesh that lived on the earth died. We are talking about things we can't even really picture. We're talking about things that we can see no longer being able to be seen. And this happened for 150 days, you would notice that The waters prevailed on the earth. So look there, in verse one, there or the end of verse twenty-four, chapter seven. The waters prevailed on the earth one hundred and fifty days. Now this word "abated." It's not a word that I use very often. So I had to I had to Google what that word meant. It means you reduce its strength. It's saying to us the waters had all the power. For 40 days, then 150 days probably is the way that is. Or at the maximum 100, 100, maximum 190 days, minimum 150 days. I'm not really sure how we're supposed to take that. The waters ruled. But then the strength was taken away from the waters. And you see that happening in verse 1 of chapter 8. That God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth the waters subside. You've now been in this ark for a period of time, and you're no longer being sloshed back and forth as you were being tossed on an open sea. But it's now calm. And you're there, and you're waiting. And for many days it has not come out. The tops of the mountains you would see in verse 5 are not seen until the tenth month on the first day. Almost eight months later is the first time that land is seen. Jackie is in the midst of her pregnancy, right? Eight months is almost full-term pregnancy. That's how long the earth was covered in water. And it's going down and it's going down So that finally, in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day, so 11 months later, all the water is gone. The water is dried up. But what about the land? The land is still so soaked and so saturated. And remember, he sends the ravens out and the doves out and all this. And finally, it gets to the point that in the second month, I want you to notice this in chapter 8 and verse 15, that God said to Noah in verse 15, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons with you, and all these things, get out from here. Because verse it's actually verse 14, that in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Finally, everything is okay. So how long is that? That is a year and ten days for them to be stuck in that boat and for the entire earth to be dry. Is it any wonder that when Noah came out giving what we see in devastation, is there any wonder that the first thing that Noah does is build an altar? worship God. Imagine you're the lone survivors in this community of Houston and we're going to imagine that they're all wiped out. And you are one of eight survivors and the only reason you're alive is because of God. Of course, the very first thing we would do would be thank you. Because our life is spared. And what we gather from that, and what we gather from this whole story of the flood of Noah, is that, man, God really hates sin. Like he regretted that he had made man. He was so frustrated that he was willing to do this. He could have, he didn't have to go to this extent to deal with the sin. But he did. But you know what else we learned about that? God also loved righteousness. Is that As wicked as everybody else was, there was that guy back in chapter 6 that was blameless in his generation. Verse 9. He was righteous. And he walked with God. And so Noah found favor in his eyes. You see, even in these great times of judgment, God always knows the righteous. Peter would make that point in 2 Peter chapter 2. That God knows how to deliver the righteous from trials. And he uses a guy that we probably don't think of very often as righteous. We use the city to talk about unrighteousness. Sodom and Gomorrah. That place of great wickedness. And what Peter says is that the Lord rescued righteous people. a man who was tormented in his soul day by day at the wickedness that went on in that place. That just because everything else is around us is awful and is evil and is wicked does not mean that I have to be too. And I need to understand that if I am just like everybody else, the same fate will happen to me. There will be judgment. But if I am like the Noah's and the Lot's of the world that are different than the evil world that is around us, my outcome will also be different. I will be saved. second thing I I saw and I learned, as it just reminded me of this, was I think it was Tuesday morning. Maybe it was Wednesday morning. I was watching CNN. And maybe you saw this video. This guy was preparing for a live shot. And they're getting ready, and they hear this sound go And they're like, what is it? You can see the friend. They turn. And the guy's like, get an extension cord. What had happened was a man in his nice pickup truck had been staying at the hotel. And he was trying to go out and get some food, I believe. And he turns into what he thought was a road. That just had some water on it. Turns out it was a ravine. That was filled with water. And so he goes right into that ravine. They hear the sound. Like we said earlier. The water prevails. The water is taking the truck. The, water, the truck is going under the water. The CNN crew is getting their stuff together. They've got a rope. And so they run over. They throw the guy the rope. He rolls down his window. And the guy is dragged out by the CNN cameraman and the CNN reporter basically on live TV. And you know what they didn't stop and do? Who's my neighbor? Like, is that person the same skin color as I am? Is that person the same religion as I am? You know what they said? That person is in need and i got to help them. I know i got to be, I know i got to work. I know I'm supposed to give this shot right now. I know I'm supposed to give a report. But if I don't get there, that person is dead. And that's just one story. That gentleman, when he got out of that car, boy, he was shaking. As you can imagine, again, right? We were just talking about this last week, oddly enough. That if you had a car accident and you went off into the water, how I needed to order a little hammer thing off of Amazon that Hannah sent me a leak to for $9.95 so I could bust the windows so I could get out. And here we are a week later and that's what needs to be done. But I say, everyone's a neighbor. Because what you see in the community when tragedy hits, we don't care what color skin is. We don't care what religion it is. You see someone that is in need and we help. And I have to step back and ask myself the question, why aren't we good Samaritans every day then? That's the point that Jesus is making. Is that we don't just help the people that can help us. We don't just help the people that are close to us. We don't just help the people that are like us. We help the people that are in need. And it may cost me something. Remember, it cost that man in Luke 10, that good Samaritan, it cost him money. We don't know if he was poor. We don't know anything. But he paid the wages. He paid for the one in which he put in the inn. So I want you to think about that. Did anybody risk their lives to help their neighbor in this? Where there was a cost? What? There was one guy. There's this whole group of people. They're called the Cajun Army. They come from Louisiana, and so after Katrina, they kind of formed this army, and there are a bunch of these guys on airboats. And when things like this happen, they bring their airboats, and they go out and they try to rescue. And so I don't remember which news organization it was, but they had a reporter riding with them. And she says to the guy, Don't you ever think about what happens if you get caught up in this or if you fall out? He said, I'll deal with that when that happens is how you're trying to rescue. And they don't care who it is. And Jesus is telling us when we see somebody who is in need, Wes, help them. Do what you can. Don't ignore them. And finally, the last thing that I was really reminded of. In fact, before I say that, I want to point this out. That wasn't just people that were close by. We might even say Louisiana was pretty close by. One of the things that we see is that we even feel a kinship, a neighborship, even all the way here in New Jersey to these people, don't we? Where we're like, what can I do to help? My friend, who is not a Christian, he says, Man, I'm a contractor. I wonder if I get a group of contractors to go down, say like December and do some work for a couple weeks. People from afar want to help. And we have an example of that in the New Testament. Why don't you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8-9. and 9. We reference this all the time from the table. That Jeremy even, I think he said it, and maybe he was even prayed, God loves a cheerful giver. Well, do you know the scenario in which that comes from? It comes from when there was a major famine that took place in Judea. The place where Jerusalem was and where other Christians were. And you had people in the other side of the world. You had people in Corinth, in Athens, Greece. You had people in other places, in Philippi, in Macedonia, in Achaia, in all these different regions, and we would say different states, clear across the world. They wanted to help out, and you would see that in chapter eight, and verse one, or excuse me, chapter nine, in verse one, that Paul says to these Corinthians, he says it's superfluous, like it's not needed for me to write to you about the ministry of the service. And here's a phrase that we're going to focus on later, probably uh, in the year, for the saints. See, these people, they are doing this for other Christians. And what he is specifically talking about here is that they are doing this for Christians. He says, I know your readiness, verse 2, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And the zeal has stirred up most of the other people. Like the people of Corinth. They wanted to help the Christians in Judea and Jerusalem who were in need a year ago. And so they've been getting their funds together to help with that. To the point where they had stirred up other people to do the same thing. You see, when tragedy strikes our brethren in particular, Do we have the readiness, the desire, even from clear across the world? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I'm terrible about that. But I want you to notice one of the things that he says here. If you go back to chapter 8, as he is talking about these things, he's trying to make sure the Corinthians follow through with what they wanted to do a year ago. uh, Does that ever happen to you? Like, I want to help, and we're all gung-ho right when it happens, and then time goes by and I never send the money, or I never go and actually do anything about it, and it's just kind of weighing to the point where uh, I missed that one. He's saying, I don't want that to be the case with you guys. But he says, I want you to notice verse 10. He says, the matter, I give this judgment back in chapter 8. I give this judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness may be matched by your completing of it of what you have. And here's what he says. For if your readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may support, or excuse me, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever had much gathered little, and so on and so forth. Do you get what he just said there? I don't want you to go and burden yourself to the point of helping someone else. What? What you have can help. No matter how little or how big it is, what you have can help. And so I read this morning that Michael Dell, the creator of Dell Computers and Dell Technologies, he and his wife pledged $36 million. I might say it. I do not have $36 million. That would be the understatement of probably a lifetime. But what do I have? Maybe I'm a contractor and I've got a skill. And I can take off and I can go help. Maybe I've got whatever. He said, what you have is what I desire. And this is the passage where they gave of themselves to the Lord first. They wanted to help. They wanted to do what was pleasing to the Lord. And the final thing that I want to point out that I was reminded of was again another little story that you saw on live TV. This guy on the left, he was the son. He was living in this this city, and he wasn't sure where his father was there on the right. But he had to leave his own place. And he walked 11 miles in the dark, the sun is to where he thought his father would be in Rockport. And he got to Rockport after walking 11 miles in the dark and in the rain, and he did not find his father. And he was terrified, and he's looking, and they're searching, and he's crying, and they're interviewing him, like, what are you doing? Like, trying to find my father. And so, hadn't had cell phone service in a couple days. And they used the satellite phone. CNN used the satellite phone for him to call. And he called and his father answered the phone. And the kid cries on the thing as he can't believe that he's talking to his father. His father was in, I believe ended up being in, Oklahoma, or in Austin. He was in Austin. He says, Adam, we'll get on the bus and I'm going to come to Austin. Lo and behold, the son got on the bus. He went to Austin, and then this interview takes place later. Where they are both crying there. They're, the son says, My father is my hero. But the father says something to him. Apparently, their relationship had been strained, to say the least. And the father said to the son, He said, Man, it's a special relationship between a father and a son. He says, It's overwhelming to me that He cared so much for me. My son went looking for me. We got lost, we got separated, and my son went looking for me. And it reminded me of the joy of finding those that, were, that are lost. That Those parables that are given there in Luke chapter 15 about the woman who lost her coin. She had ten, and she lost it. She lost one, and she's looking all in the house. And she's digging everywhere in the house. And she finds it. And she goes and she tells all of her friends. And she calls her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. Or the man that had the hundred sheep. That he loses one of those. And he leaves the ninety and nine. And he goes and he searches throughout. And he finds the sheep. And he brings it back on his shoulders. And he says, Rejoice with me. For I found my sheep. And then we have that son who strained the relationship with his father. The difference is, the father is the one that goes searching for the son. The son knew where to go to get the father. And the father is waiting for him. And the father welcomes that son back who says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am not worthy to be called your son. But just make me as one of your hired servants. Like, our relationship... I don't even deserve to have that special relationship with you anymore, Father. And the father says, no, 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 no. Here's the ring. Here's the robe. Here's the fatty cat. Let's rejoice and be married." And that one got frustrated, right? His brother said, I've never done this. He said, it is right that we do this. For your brother who is lost has been found. And the Bible tells us what that parable is all about. So there is joy in heaven with the angels when one sinner repents. How much joy it is when you have gone out and you have worked hard to try to find people that are lost and you just find one. It was worth all of the gas if you're in a boat all of the money you spent, all of the difficulties, because when they realized that that was the only way they were going to be saved, the joy that it brings. And I say, man, Wes, how hard are you working to see you can save the loss? You need to get on that and remember the joy that it is to help people find the Lord and be saved. May we learn many other lessons throughout the years and throughout our lives. But those are just some of the ones that I remember when I thought about this week. Maybe this morning you're ready to be saved. Maybe this morning you're ready to submit yourself to Jesus and be baptized in to his name and be forgiven of your sins. Or maybe you've been that sheep that was lost and you're ready to come back and that Son and you want to be found. God says come back and I will welcome you. Whatever it is that you need this morning, won't you come now as we stand and as we sing?